It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. Bowl out for 36 at Adelaide without Kohli, Ashwin, Bumrah, Jadeja, Ishan, Umesh and Shami. India chased 328 on the final day at Brisbane to seal a barely believable series-clinching win against all odds. We'll be talking about that test, England's win at Gaul and more. I'm Yazrana and with me today is the editor-in-chief of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Phil Walker, the magazine editor of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon and Crickviz analyst, Ben Jones. Ben, We'll start with you as you've been pretty much nocturnal for the last six weeks. For those who haven't got around to watching the highlights yet or couldn't watch it live, sum up for us what, what happened on that remarkable final day. Well, it was remarkable. It was one of those days of test cricket, which we do have like periodically you go into a last day thinking, oh, they need 300 odd to, uh, to get to get the win and the opposition need 10 wickets or maybe they need fewer and you're thinking... This is going to play out fairly predictably. Yeah, there's 90-odd overs to go. This, we're going to get a result here. There was a bit of weather around in Brisbane, so we were kind of thinking maybe we're going to lose a few overs. Maybe the draw is going to come in. But just the nature of the fact that India are always going to want to go for the win made things quite exciting. And Australia obviously needed to in order to kind of, yeah, take the, take the series. But things started out really beautifully. Um, as, as Phil mentioned on the last podcast, Rohit Sharma kind of got in, looked quite nice, looked good for a little, a little bit of time and then got out, and then Shubman Gill and Pajara kind of started doing their thing, and for a, for a session this morning, it looked like India were going to not just not just do it, but kind of do it in the way that you'd want to in an ideal scenario, with one guy kind of blocking it out in Pajara, and, and Gill just showing all this class and all this amazing ability that he's got, kind of throwing the bat at everything really aggressively and playing this kind of Saywag-style innings. Um, and then there, was a, there was a particular shot which I thought kind of really brought to mind Sayrope was this kind of uppercut from a really wide ball off Stark, which went for six down to third man. And there's a really good crowd catch, which I think always kind of elevates a six. And it was just, at that point, you're thinking, this is going one way. India are going to get on top and the run required run rate's falling. Then a couple of wickets fall and things start to get a bit twitchy. Ajinka Rahane comes out and plays a really aggressive kind of 20 odds to try and get the run re- required run rate down. 
and things just start to drift away from India a little bit and you think this is going to kind of go towards a block out but then Rishabh Pant comes out and all of the talk across the whole day has been about the idea that Pant is this kind of ace up the sleeve of India that this kind of wild card who who can uh, basically in the minds of the commentators and the kind of punitariat like score eight and over nine and over but realistically like even just scoring a run a ball was going to be quite a useful thing and he comes out and he blocks for a bit he gets 20 off 40 30 off 60 and then he starts to accelerate and wickets starts to fall around him Pajara goes second new ball takes all of that effect takes a, takes a few wickets Agarwal comes in and goes and then with about 60 off 60 needed at the end of the day Pant <laughs> and Washington Sunder this 21 year old and 23 year old just decide that, yeah, you know what, this test cricket luck, you know, we play IPL, we play proper cricket, we're just going to start hitting sixes and ramps and little reverse sweeps, little dabs around the corner. And uh, and all of a sudden, they need about 10 off 30. And if anything, the day ends in a bit of an anticlimax because India walk it. This, was, this wasn't Headingley, this wasn't nine down needing, you know, one off one ball. It was actually, in the end, pretty comfortable which is insane because this is the sixth highest ever chase against Australia and it didn't really seem hard, which is pretty mad. It's crazy to think that a few weeks ago, India didn't pick Rishabh Pant in their 11 and now he's hit back-to-back fourth innings classics. Phil, I remember we were talking, I don't know, I can't remember, it might have been during the IPL after he had quite a difficult IPL and you said that Pant will eventually be remembered for what he does in test cricket. How, how impressed have you been about how he's bounced back from a difficult few months from not even making the 11 to, you know, lead, leading one of India's great away wins, great wins full stop. Yeah, I remember saying that as well. And I think on reflection, I probably said it because I don't pay that much attention to all the other stuff in reality. Uh, but in the end, your, your legacy is, is still just about carved out in the long form of the game. And, and a player with those kinds of components uh, deserves that stage. Now, Rishabh Pant can go out there and, and smash, you know, an ODI 160 balls in Cuttack or wherever, and, and we will applaud it and forget about it by the following morning. And, and, and that obviously applies with a little bit more oomph when it comes to all 20 over cricket. Uh, but when you go out there and do that, back to back, different kinds of innings as well. The 97 was a, was a dashing, dashing innings. May have come off, may have not. It was, it was appointed innings as well because, you know, infamously he wasn't playing in that first test match. And he came off the back of, correct me if I'm wrong, but a pretty indifferent IPL where his approach was being questioned for the first time. Uh, and so to come out there uh, in the previous test match and take the piss for 90-odd was one thing. But then to come out and, and strum an unbeaten and untouchable and completely in control 80-odd today and look like a seasoned, gnarled pro in there at the, at the, the peak of his powers. You know, a kind of Matryoshka doll Stokes, really. Uh, completely in control of his game. Uh, completely in control of, the, of, the, of the, the, the scenario that was presented to him. And, and to see that play out, uh, it was quite rousing from an Indian perspective. It was rousing from a neutral's perspective. But again, we always come back to it, and it's this ongoing hand-wringing paranoia that we have about the, the hoary old five-day game. Well, what it told us again is it's the best goddamn game ever created. And, and that will resonate throughout the cricketing world. Um, just as an aside, Harry Kane tweeted, I just saw a half hour ago, get him on the show, yes. Get him on the show. Yeah, it was glorious. Uh, I'm feeling slightly ragged because I made the mistake of watching most of it. Um, I know you, you know, hit young kids, you know, you, you don't mind it. But for me, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit. But 
yeah, it was it was uh, deeply stirring stuff. What did Harry Kane have to say, Phil? About this was about the Australia India test. Every test has been really exciting. Great win for at BCCI. He knows what side his bread's at BCCI. <laughs> Yeah, when he says every test, does that mean he was watching uh, South Africa, Sri Lanka as well recently? He's really got I, I, into his test cricket. Every test of the modern era. I don't think really? that. More, more of this humdinger uh, down under. But we'll have to find out when he's on the show next week. We'll get him on next week to, to, to see if he thinks England should play two or three spinners in the first test. <laughs> um, Gurav asks, after a couple of years, people will look at this series and look at the numbers in the series and note that Pajara averaged only 33, while Pant averaged 68 for the series. Is one possible without the other? We'll go to you, Ben. No, it's not. That's the whole point of Test cricket, isn't it? That, that we, we get bound up in this kind of little cricketing culture war between, oh, you know, T20 cricket versus Test cricket, 5 day versus ODI, whatever, whatever, whatever. The point is, is that cricket changes across formats but the kind of fundamental principles are the same you need people to do jobs and you need people to do other jobs everything complements each other Pujara knackered the Australian bowlers across an entire series takes 900 plus deliveries that doesn't happen very often in Australia the reason the way that he did that was by blocking and blocking and blocking and leaving and blocking he did it for best part of two months Australia didn't rotate their attack they picked the same attack for four tests in a row Cameron Green had a really bad series, a really bad series with the ball. I know he's a young kid, but you have to go back to 1993 or 1996, I think, when Kasparovich was early on in his career, for an Australian bowler to bowl as often and not take a wicket. So they had basically had a four-man attack for the whole series. So Pajara grinding these guys down and just taking overs out of their legs and just really wearying them meant that when Pan does come in, he can play the shots and he can yeah, use all those IPL skills, all of that ability. And it means that actually, yeah, as you say, like we look at Bajara in 2018-19 and you think, yeah, he averaged what, what 60 plus and he was, he was a legitimate great then. That was a properly brilliant series made that incredible, incredible double time, I think, or double time at either Sydney or Melbourne and another time in the other place. And so you had that obvious kind of scorecard greatness. But this time he kind of had a greater emphasis on him because there was no Coley there. He had to do more. He didn't do more by making more runs, but he did more by just kind of soaking up more. He just kind of took all the punches for the whole batting god and said, right, you know, I'm the old wizard pro. I'll take it. I'll take the hits. I'll have Cummins coming at me. And I mean, he got hit, I think was it, I think it was 14 times this series. It was the most we've ever recorded by an Indian batsman in a series, um, which is since 2006. I think it might be by any batsman since 2006 in Australia. So he's taking <laughs> unprecedented levels of blows, but Pant is then coming out and genuinely being brilliant. I don't want to detract from him by saying Pujara is doing all the greatness for him. He's got, I think Pant's now got the second highest average in the four things of a test cricket ever, which, you know, it's a tiny sample, tiny portion of the game, but it's the portion of the game when it's supposed to be really hard. And I think that part of the reason that he's doing really well in that phase is because he's a brilliant player and he's a legitimately kind of elite batsman in the next, coming next five years or so. But it's also because Pujara has done a hell of a lot of work in the preceding overs, just really soaking up the pressure, knackering those those bowlers. And you know, when, when Lyons bowling like a drain, Stark's really not bowling very well. They just keep going back to Cummins, and they just keep going back to Hazelwood. And all of a sudden, they've bowled thirty overs in a you know in a day and a half. It's pretty you know, suddenly Pant can come in and just express himself in that kind of cliched way. I think I think I think the the, the partnership between them. It has been some genuinely really lovely about this thing in terms of the, like giving Test cricket a shot in the arm, as the cliche is. It's like that is the point of it. 
is that there is room for everyone. So like rugby, like rugby, rugby union having room for like the kind of five foot one winger. Like the point of it is that you've got this open skill. That's what makes it a great sport. Yeah, I'm, 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 yeah, I'm still giddy about how well Pant did, but that's more from a kind of personal vindication point of view. But I think what Pajara did this series will endure um, in a way that maybe right now, as you say, an average of 30 or it doesn't necessarily suggest it might. I guess the obvious point to make is that these four innings totals that certainly 10, 15 years ago and certainly further back from that just would have been inconceivable and teams would have shut up shop straight away. They are now becoming quite, quite tasty and conceivable options. And, and what we saw today was, was a team that didn't necessarily have to win to retain this trophy and all of that. Coming into that final day, looking at the scorecard, seeing 300, uh, and you know, this is a day five pitch, all right, it's Australia, so it's reasonably, it holds together reasonably well, but it was still turning appreciably at times, and it still had a lot of pace and bounce in it. Looking at that total, I'm thinking, yeah, we can take that. We'll take that down and we'll do it properly. And it was interesting the way that the TV uh, reflected the change of, of tone, really. And so it, it, it turned from kind of 110 needed from maybe 22 overs, but very soon it was 68 needed from from 73 balls and then it just became this run chase that that became very familiar for people um, and so it was this this marvelous combination of fearlessness on the one hand and seeing these these kids who don't really understand failure and they're all already multi-millionaires and they've already been told from the age of about seven that you are going to be great you are going to be iconic and it's very much another day for them and it's another day at work and so we, we, we can stand back and be staggered by, by these numbers that are now routinely getting knocked off in fourth innings chases. But it is a beautiful consequence of, of this, this, you know, pyjama stuff that, that we all know and love. And, and, and if we can continue to have that infusion, then the game, the game is, is, is looking very rosy for the future. Uh, it, was, it was a brilliant line. Kerry O'Keefe, what a commentator, by the way. Kerry O'Keefe, what, what a brilliant commentator. He said... Um, detached from, co- from consequence was his description of the end. And it's this kind of new businessy kind of term. But I thought it summed up the approach of Sundar in particular when he comes out here in his, on his debut test match and strums a, a 25 to, to, again, just get the thing over the line. And it's that notion, isn't it? And you hear it a lot from players when you interview them. Um, don't think about the, the outcome. Don't think about tomorrow. Don't think about any criticism. Don't think about derision. Don't think about what the coach is saying in your ear. Just go out and do what you do. Uh, and cricket has wrestled with that notion for centuries. And it seems now, as a consequence of all of the fun stuff that is cricketainment and more, we are, it's now flooding into the test game. And the test game, whisper it, certainly in my lifetime, has never been more exciting than it is right, right here and now. Joe, and one, one thing that Phil touched on that I think is quite interesting is that these bigger chases are becoming not just, they're not just happening, happening more frequently, but they're becoming harder for the fielding team to defend. Batsmen now, even quite low down the order, have a range of shots that didn't really exist 10, 15 years ago. Um, and once teams get within that 100 run zone, when they have a sniff of chasing the higher targets, I think, you know, in the, in the, in the most famous high profile um, big run chase in the last few years, I think Fielding captains found it quite hard to counteract that. Do you think that's fair? And do you think we're, we're going to see more 300-plus fourth-inning chases than we might have done in previous years? I think that's absolutely the case. Things are possible that weren't even possible to dream of only a few years ago. 
Uh, and it means it's easy to drift into hyperbole when the, the events are so fresh. And, but I think that this has to be the best away series win in my lifetime. I, I, I was thinking a few earlier that, that popped into my head, this Australia winning in the Caribbean in, in 1995. South Africa winning in Australia in 2008, 2009, when Australia just did not lose on home soil. And then from an English-centric point of view, you, you naturally think of the 10-11 Ashes or winning in India. But that 10-11 Ashes win, for instance, uh, that Aussie bowling attack was considerably weaker than what India have faced up to over the last few weeks. Uh, they, that Australia team didn't really have a spinner worthy of the name. The quicks were very hit and miss. Then when you throw in all the things that were thrown at this India side, uh, the manner of that first test defeat, the ridiculous injury list, Australia's attack, which we were talking about as being the greatest Australian attack of all time at the start of the Test Series. The absence of Kohli, who's their captain, their best batsman, and basically the whole heartbeat of the team as we understood it, but perhaps not quite as much as, as we thought because Rahane has completely taken on that role. And I thought how cool Rahane looked at the end when they'd pulled off that chase. He just kind of puffed out his cheeks a little bit and strolled onto the pitch. He, he has become an absolute giant of a man over the last few weeks. And he's obviously... He, the way he plays, the way he acts, he, he does kind of operate in the, in, the, in the background a little bit and perhaps necessarily so when Kohli is there. But it's been great to see him become this force for Indian cricket in a way that I didn't necessarily think he was capable of. Um, and they've, they've got some interesting selection decisions ahead of them, haven't they? Because uh, you get used to seeing the same Indian test team pretty much all conditions, pretty much wherever they play because they've got such a strong side. And what's really become apparent, not that we didn't know it, but perhaps we didn't know to what extent, is just the depth of Indian cricket is just astonishing. To come in the way that some of these players have over the last couple of weeks and not only do their bit, but to grab games by the scruff of the neck and actually win them for their side is, is something pretty extraordinary. Um, and that's why I think even if I, I don't think I'd be interested, I mean, Phil's been around a bit a bit longer than the rest of us, Phil, any away series wins uh, to, to, to kind of rival that in your time watching cricket? Top of my head, I can't think of any particularly. You mentioned the South Africa one, 08-09, I think it was. Mm. That was a bit of a, a kind of game-changing winter, really. Not just because Australia were were knocked off their perch for the first time in, in a generation, but because of the nature of how they went about it. You're talking about big fourth innings chases. They chased down 400 at Perth. And the Villiers made, a, made an unbeaten 100. And it was a cruise. And I, I remember watching that. And again, you just didn't see that happening. Before that, the West Indies chased 400 at Antigua, but that's a postage stamp ground. And it was a one-off. That, that series against South Africa looked like it was... Uh, the tone of the game was changing a little bit because that the modernity of one-day cricket was beginning to flood into test cricket. Um, but yeah, overall, your point, Joe, I can't, can't think of anything more dramatic than this. And just on Rohane, um, firstly, uh, touch the Noel Gallagher's, I thought, at the end today, just the way he sort of strides around, you know, king of the castle. But ostentatiously unemotional, wasn't he, at the end? Like Dhoni style. Inside, he's obviously going, this is unbelievable. But he had to maintain his composure. I liked it. I liked it very much. Um, the 100 at Melbourne will go down in legend. Uh, we'll have to. Uh, and and the, the folly of predictions, just if I dare, I, I did have a look at Wisdom Cricket Monthly from two months ago this morning, Joe. Uh, your one, 3-1 um, Australia. The only way India can stay in the series is if, they, if they're one up going into the second test because with Kohli going home, 
Rahane doesn't stand a chance. And Adam Collins, bless him, the great Adam Collins, your friend and mine, for zip, Australia, for zip, there's going to be a reset. It's going to be a reset. Well, now what, Phil? I thought you might bring this up yeah, I, I thought on the show. Might. And, and precedent has been set. We're going to be starting to trawl through some uh, predictions from now on. Do you I feel like this is a very dangerous game and one I don't really want <laughs> us to play. You remember, Joe, I said it was going to be very close. Do you remember that? I did say that. But anyway. And I think you predicted exactly how it would unfold as well, didn't you, Phil? I did, to, to the letter, yeah. yeah he, actually predicted the, he actually predicted the exact birth date of Coley's, uh, Coley's child as well. That was what was quite creepy, but just, just to jump in on, on Rahane's um, innings at Melbourne as well, because obviously that was primarily framed as being the, the kind of comeback, the response to Adelaide. It was the response to 36 all out. It was the response to Coley going home. It was, I'm the Indian captain now. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the big man. This is, my, this is my time. But actually, there's not been any other Indian centuries in the tour. And yet they're one, two, one. And I think that that kind of flips it. If we do think about those kind of great modern wins of teams going to Australia and winning, you compare it to 10-11, like every England batsman who was worth his salt, you know, down to about the 10th ranked batsman in the country, went and got a ton on that tour. Like that was a batting tour. That was how they won that. I mean, Stuart Broad always brings it up when he's asked about how to win in Australia. It's like you win by batting, you don't win by bowling. And everyone made a century. This series, India rocked up and they won with their bowling, and it was their bowling that was decimated by injury. It was the bowling that was down to their ninth choice seamer. Shardell Thacker, as much as, you know, he's a very exciting bowler, and he bowled incredibly well, but he's not anywhere near as good as India's first choice attack, and yet he was the one that was as responsible for victory here as anyone else. Yeah, the fact that there was this you know, pronounced absence of centuries is, you know, it's, it's slightly bizarre, really, when you think of how other teams have gone to Australia and just said, like, okay, well, we're gonna, we're gonna first draw, and then we're going to win. We're going to work from that way backwards. Whereas actually India have just rocked up with a brilliant seam attack and then a brilliant second string seam attack. And then basically a brilliant third string seam attack and bowled Australia out twice at the Gabba and then chased it down. It's, yeah, I think that's what will, again, in the fullness of time, we'll look back on this and be like, wow, India won two tests in Australia with one individual century. And it's like, yeah, a couple of 90s, but it's, yeah, statistics and all that, you can't trust them. A few weeks ago on this show, we talked about, um, we picked our imaginary England fifth test of next Ashes teams. Um, and India's team for the fourth test of this series was very England at the end of the Ashes series, but they ended up winning it. You know, one thing I'm quite interested in about how the, this India 11 will be remembered at the end of their careers. So Rohane and Pajara, we know how they will be remembered by and large. But the rest are all reasonably inexperienced at test level. And I wonder if we'll look back and think, Sure, they were inexperienced at the time, but most went on to do great things. We'll look back and see a few guys who barely ever played again. I mean, the bowling attack, Washington, Shardell, Siraj, Saini and Natarajan had only bowled 10 deliveries between them in, in Test cricket before this test. That was Shardell bowled 10 deliveries on Test debut two years ago before pulling up injured. Um, Bill Peppers has got quite a good question. He says, is this the start of a period of sustained dominance for India, given demographics, affluence, and maybe most importantly, the discovery of quicker bowlers able to perform in alien overseas conditions? Two years ago, I think it was, maybe two and a half years ago now, they went to South Africa uh, and lost. They lost 2-1. Um, and yet, I wrote about it at the time for the magazine, and, and I said, this has been India's, India's month. And and it was because of what happened at Joburg. Do you remember that game at Joburg on a, on a green mamba of a pitch? And Elgar made an 80-odd and was, was hit from head to toe and somehow managed to survive it. 
to win the game. Rahane made a 48, I think it was, an incredible back-to-the-wall kind of innings. They, they won that game, and lost the series, but won that game, and they beat South Africa on their own patch at their own game. And Bumrah was still uh, an emerging name. Shami, obviously, is a you know, pedigree bowler, but there, weren't, there wasn't a, a body of evidence to, to show that this is what Indian cricket has become and, it's, and this is what Indian cricket will become. But by the end of that game, I was pretty convinced that if they can sew up that kind of performance away from home in foreign climes, uh, adjusting their embarrassments of riches to suit the occasion and the conditions, then no one's ever going to stop them. <laughs> no one's ever going to stop them. The, the, one, the one caveat I would add is that you can only play 11 v 11. So, uh, and, you know, great players emerge by osmosis almost. You know, Ben, ben Stokes is not, is not the result of, of our evolved approach to state school cricket. Right? So, so genius comes from, from the nooks and crannies of, of sporting life, sure. Uh, but but the, the, the depth of Indian cricket has always been terrifying to, to look from the outside. And you've seen, you've seen its, its kind of graduation in the last few days, really. As you say, those numbers are joke numbers. The, the, the inexperience of that bowling attack, that is, that is ridiculous, really. And when you think about the team that they're coming up against at the Gabba, at the Gabba, where they last lost in 19, Ben, 19-something, 88, maybe? 1988, yeah, yeah. My parents yeah. had just started uni. There you go. All right. Okay. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, staggering, really. It's very hard to see um, them ever being not in the top two. Uh, but there is this the beauty of sport that it is still cyclical. And also, whisper it, they haven't won an ICC tournament in ages, which is a bizarre and increasingly peculiar fact, isn't it? When you see how, uh, how yeah, invariably dominant they are in test cricket. Well, this is, what, yeah, this is what I was going to say. I mean, they haven't won a T20 World Cup since the first one, which they didn't take seriously uh, and sort of won almost by chance. So they haven't won it since they've had the IPL. Uh, they haven't actually had the success that you would expect. So, and I think it, it's, it, we're talking a kind of a side dominating in the way that Australia did and West Indies before them. I think it's so much harder to do that now with, with three formats, the schedule as it is, the demands on players, um, teams having to rotate more often, Australia just played the same test team for about seven years. I mean, and everyone knew exactly their role and teams just can't do that now. So I think in a way, it's for, we, we love these great teams that come along and you can compare them from previous series. But I think it's actually better for the game when you have, as we do at the moment, four or five teams, probably four teams competing for, for top spot who can beat each other. I'd also say that like, we often have these conversations when a team does well with seemingly great depth is we all kind of get very excited slash stressed about the idea that, you know, this is kind of going to be an unending dynasty until the end of time. And how are we going to ever stop this? And it's like, you know, will Pep Guardiola's Barcelona ever lose a game ever again? Well, yeah, guess what? When everyone gets old and you have to bring the next generation in, things get harder. And as much as we see Shubman Gill being brilliant now, part of what's been so exciting about this series, I think, is that the guys that have come in, have performed above their expectations. They've not performed because they're predicted to be absolute worldy. They're predicted to be good, and then they've been amazing. No one thought Washington Sundar is going to take the best figures at the Gabba by an Indian spinner in ages. Like, Washington Sundar is not a first-class bowler. He's a good bowler. He's a brilliant T20 bowler. He's rocked up and he's done way more than he thought, we thought he was going to. And maybe that's, you know, because he's got some kind of moxie, he's got some kind of extra element, which means that he's going to perform like that forever. 
but it could also be that you know the spirit and the occasion has kind of filled, filled him up and he's you know they've performed over and above their expectations and that's as good as it's ever going to be personally i think india have got obviously they've got you know a billion people to draw on and the cricketing culture to be envious of but at the same time australia have got have had this kind of this sense of oh you know well they've got all these players now this is it this is this is it forever now they won five nil in the ashes they won four nil in the ashes they can't ever lose again and then they do because eras fade away and things get hard if Kohli and Pajara and Rahane aren't replaced because how the hell are you going to replace those guys <laughs> they're geniuses you can replace them with Shubman Gill but you need another two Shubman Gills it's it, I think I think we can see in the next five ten years India be great but whether they're going to be eighties Windies nineties Australia great if they are, then that's testament to them. It's not testament to some kind of structural thing, which is entirely biased in their favour. You've got to give them the credit if they do execute it. But yeah, it's, it, it, is, it is a bit scary. <laughs> it, was, it was only a few weeks ago that Australia were top of the rankings, looked set for a spot in the World Test Championship final, which they still have a decent chance of qualifying for. And now there are quite a few question marks over a few members of their team. Harris averages under 25 in Test cricket, weighed about 30. Tim Payne, we've talked about quite a lot this um, series. Do you, Joe, do you see them making any wholesale changes ahead of their test series in South Africa that, that should start next month, which is the only test series, by the way, that they've got scheduled before the Ashes, with the exception of the possible World Test Championship final and a one-off test against Afghanistan in November? Well, Tim Payne's got to be under some serious pressure, I'd have thought. Um, Australian captains don't lose too many test series at, at home and, and get away with it. And he's also not such a strong batsman and keeper that he necessarily warrants a place for those disciplines so I, I, I think I, I don't know what the what the kind of press are saying in Australia at the moment I haven't I haven't looked at that this morning but I'd have thought he's got to be under some pretty serious pressure perhaps not getting the boot quite yet but he's probably one bad series away from um, from relinquishing that and we talked about last week who takes who takes over I mean I, I think Cummins would be a great shout but that's by no means a given so that would be a huge decision for them to have to make um, and then the batting, yeah, I mean, there's been there's a few batsmen there who've obviously got a bit of talent, but but haven't massively convinced. Um, but I think they're probably, I think Justin Langer's way is they're going to decide these players and, and stick with them. He obviously there's obviously a lot of love for Travis Head there, who I think will get a, a proper a proper run. Um, in some ways, selection would be a bit easier if you gave the the gloves to Matthew Wade and. Payne wasn't in the side, so that could almost kind of free up a spot, make selection a bit easier. Um, and the bowling attack, they were knackered. They had a blip uh, towards the end of this series, um, but they're still, for me, the, the most versatile, uh, threatening attack in the world. So there's so many bits that work for Australia. And Smith and Abishane, they've got two of the very best test bats in the world. There's just those kind of two or three slots and the captain that will become kind of under the spotlight over the next couple of weeks. One of the thing that re- one of the things that like genuinely pisses me off about the kind of reaction to Australian cricket and the reaction within Australian cricket is this kind of systematic adjustment of expectations because of the kind of culture um, evaluation. This kind of oh, well, we're t- the team environment's improved, so we don't have to do as well now. Whereas Australia have literally got, it, by my by my own personal opinion, which I will happily take the blows for, the best slash second best batsman of all time. They've got an elite batsman in Marnus Labuschagne. They've got one of the best openers of the modern era in David Warner. They've then got their best opening, sorry, their best bowling attack of all time, if you go by that kind of Bengal and the metric of the worst, you know, how good is the worst bowler of that attack. And yet they've drawn in England against a very, very mediocre side. 
in England. That, you know, that England side was as low as it was going to get for a while. Peyton Roy, I mean, the batting, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They were not good. No James Anderson, etc. They needed they needed to win that series. That was their chance. They lost against India two years ago. Yeah, yeah, they didn't have Warner. You didn't have Smith. That's one thing. But they still had that bowling attack against an Indian batting lineup that was still learning and still kind of developing as, as a side. They didn't win in the UAE when they went over there. They drew that first game and then lost the second. The markers of Tim Payne's captaincy, the, the, the kind of the points where you go, well, those are the pivot points between being okay and being great or being okay and being good. Every single time that's come up, they've gone the other way. They've gone towards being okay. And I think that there does need to be, have, there does need to be a conversation had about whether or not Tim Payne, not necessarily as a captain himself, but as a kind of institution, is actually underperforming quite substantially. I, I, I personally believe he is. I, I, I disagree on the idea that he shouldn't be in the side. As much as I, I don't tend to like specialist keepers who can't really bat, this has been his best ever series with the bat. He's batted really well. He won, in, he won Australia the test in Adelaide, apart from Josh Hazelwood's fell, but he won it with the bat. He did really well. He kept terribly, but... To be honest, there's not really a good alternative. Matthew Wade is in absolute all sorts in form with the bat. I don't think if you give him the gloves, he's going to improve. I think that's, that's probably, if anything, going to take away from already pretty meagre returns. I think what's going to worry them is that they've now lost two home series in three years against India. One you could excuse. You can't excuse this one. This, this one is genuinely, for Australian cricket, if you hold it up as that kind of, you know, the big boys of international cricket, you can't excuse losing to essentially India C. And they've already had the press conference where Payne's come out and said, oh, I'm not going to resign. I'm going to go to South Africa. I'm going to go and be captain. But, and this is the important bit, I'm, uh, you know, I don't, don't want to look ahead to, uh, to 2021 20, or with the Ashes. I don't want to look that far ahead. And it all felt very much kind of Malcolm Tucker, good resignation, bad resignation. It was like, we're going to try and frame this as like, let's get through to South Africa beat up a fairly underperforming side there and then I'll maybe step aside and give the, you know, give the armband to either Travis Head or Pat Cummins. I, I, I think Australian cricket is in a worse state than it thinks it is. The last time their openers averaged less, I think, at home was 1988 um, or maybe even slightly earlier than that. It was when they faced the Windies and it was like Marshall, Ambrose, Walsh and Patterson. And it's like, I know India are good, they're not that good. It's like <laughs> Australia have wilted under the pressure of having to perform, and you, by the reaction of the the Australian media, you you wouldn't you wouldn't know it. And I think I think that's probably worth it's probably worth having a second look at. We've talked we talked about um, Cummins and Hazelwood being brilliant. I think they have they finished the series with averages of twenty and nineteen respectively. But Stark and Lyon, particularly towards the end of the series, fed away a little bit. Ben, you wrote about Lyon going into the the Gabba test. How do you think he bowled and do you think, in hindsight, Australia maybe should have looked to rotate their seamers a bit more than they did? Well, any anything more than they did. Well, on the, the seamer point, I, I you know I, I've kind of come round to it. I've had lots of conversations with um, Cricket Info's Dan Brettig over the last eighteen months about whether or not Australia were right to do that rotation policy in the twenty nineteen Ashes. At the time, I thought it was kind of silly. Thought you just pick your best attack. It's not the end of the world. You've rested Hazelwood for the entire World Cup, seemingly. You know, let him let him loose. But actually, it's been kind of indicated in retrospect in this series because you've looked at it and gone, well, Stark's knackered. Cummins looks knackered, even though he's bowling brilliantly. He's a robot. Hazelwood looks absolutely exhausted. And Lyons bowled like a plane, as I said earlier. Even someone like a Pattinson, who's a you know, good bowler, good record. Him maybe playing at Melbourne. 
bringing Michael Nisa in his home ground for the Gabba might have been quite a useful kind of alternative. I do think they've been slightly hamstrung by how poor Cameron Green's bowling has been. Because I think it has meant that everyone's bowled maybe five overs more every innings more than they thought. And so, and especially because Lyon's also been hit out of the attack by Pajara and Pan often. I think everything's just been kind of squeezed in a way that they weren't expecting. But I do think, yeah, you can make quite a big case that they needed to rotate more. It's an easy, easy point in retrospect, but I do agree with it. Lyon uh, at the SCG bowled too straight, bowled too quick, didn't get enough drift, didn't get enough spin, and he bowled badly. Um, and I think that that, that, is, that was obvious. And he bowled slower on day five. Um, at the Gabba, he clearly was trying to get get more drift. He put more fizz on the ball. He was bowling slightly less over the perpendicular um, into, and getting a bit more drift. And I think I think that did make him look more effective. And in, and the ball that he got Shubman Gill with was the widest ball he bowled to Gill. And there was a lot of you know I I, I, get, I get a bit annoyed and maybe it's just because I, I do work with Fox and I get a bit defensive over some of the criticism on Twitter of Shane Warne. Shane Warne knows more about spin bowling than people on Twitter. <laughs> And he spent all the time that the line was bowling, saying, why is he bowling this straight line? Why is he bowling this straight line? He needs to bowl the ball wider. He needs to bowl that more attacking line on fifth, sixth stump and turn the ball in. The first ball that he did, he got Shubman Gill and he was kind of thunding outside of stump. And I think that that, that was the template for, the, for what was going to happen for the rest of the day. And I thought that was going to kind of kickstart Lyons' you know, quest for 400 wickets and winning the game. It didn't. He just went back to bowling a straight line and he bowled really poorly again. And the fact that he is, you know, all the fanfare, 100th test, all of that, cult status, you know, Gary, the goat, et cetera, et cetera, and he didn't deliver. It's a proper blot on his copybook for me, I think. That was a, this was a big series for him, and he, and he, and he failed. And it's, it's a shame, because he's a very good bowler. But Australia, if they did say, you know what, we're going to start again, and we're going to pick Swepson, or we're going to kind of try and move on and maybe pick two spinners, you wouldn't... You, you'd probably be surprised, but you couldn't say they weren't exactly without uh, kind of evidence for that policy. Uh, uh, he, he bowled badly this series uh, over a long period of time. I just want to add, looking at their, their batting lineup, um, where, where is, where's the talent? Where's the real talent coming through? Will Pekoski looked like a, a quality player, and I know that there are issues around him and he got injured again. But I imagine that he, he will have a useful test career at least. And Cameron Green with the bat obviously looks like the real deal and his record is terrifying. So there's, there's players coming through. But where's the depth when you have Marcus Harris, who's barely a test match opener, Matthew Wade, who's a reserve keeper batsman, batting at five or six, Travis Head, uh, who's currently not in the team um, and is no one's idea of a world-class number five, even if he were to be, uh, Joe Burns stunk the place out. Even David Warner is, is kind of on the turn. If you look at, his, look at his record, I mean, okay, at home he's good and he's had a bad series and he may still turn that around. But even so, he's comfortably the wrong side of 30. He's not been the same player since he came back into the team. Um, but you would expect, this is Australian cricket, you would expect there just to be a, a queue of strapping two six-foot-two beefcakes just, just round the gabatoire, right, waiting to come in fully ready to go. And... And, and yet it doesn't seem from the outside, and this is cyclical, and it needs to be pointed out, and there will be more talent coming through. But as things stand at the moment, there doesn't seem to be that, that groundswell of, of options for them, which is, for people of my kind of age who have gone through it forever, that doesn't really, doesn't really add up. You know, I mean, Stuart Law would be their second or third best player in that team, uh, you know, if we were to take it back 20 years. So it's interesting. Ben... T20 
tell me that I'm wrong? I wouldn't ever dare do that. <laughs> <laughs> I, what I would say is I don't think there's... Um, I think Marcus Harris is a better opener than you're describing. I think that in terms of Shield cricket, him and Pukowski for, for the Vicks are a genuinely proper opening partnership. And I think that once Warner does go, whether that's before the Ashes, in a year's time after the Ashes, whatever, that's the next Australian opening partnership. He's not brilliant by any stretch of the imagination, but I think he's in the Warner mould of someone who can strike at 70, 80 when he gets going. And Pukowski's a lot more of a kind of traditional, I play down the ground, I you know, play at the top of the bounce, I play through the covers as and when there's a bad ball, Australian opener. I think that is, at the very least, a model that they can follow. They play together, they know each other's game. It's left hand, right hand. They've got a bit there. I don't think it's quite as bereft. I think in terms of Travis Head, I think he's, I, I personally really like Travis Head. Um, during the 2019 Ashes, um, I was in the Sky commentary box and when, well, at one point, Travis Head got out and uh, a notable Australian commentator uh, walked off and, uh, and started to basically said he's the loosest player I've ever seen in Test cricket for Australia. Um, and I, it's kind of hard to disagree with that. He plays with such hard hands. He plays so far out in front of his body. But at times in England, he looked really exposed. I think he's a good player in Australia. He averages 40 in Test cricket. Good batsman. Averaging 40 in Australia, batting at five on Australian tracks, in the plum position at number five. That's, that's not much to write home about. And then when you, when you see how he's got out, particularly in this series, and away from home, you can write him off completely, but in this series, you know, away from his body, back, back foot punch shot, and he just keeps getting caught in the gully. This is Australia's number five. Yeah, you know, no, it is, it is, it is. He's, he's not, I'm, I, when I say he averages 40, he doesn't average 40 in Australia. He averages 40 full stop. Like, it's not like he's just kind of ticking along at number five, <laughs> hiding behind everyone else. I don't love him, but I think I can understand why he's there. And, you know, he's a captaincy option. If Payne does decide that he's not going to start, not going to continue scoring runs. The guy who I think, and it might be just personal bias, because I've seen him make a lot of runs in person in Australia. And the guy who I think needs to come in, Curtis Patterson. He's not in a great season, but I think he's a proper player. The, the ton that he made against, albeit, you know, in, in brackets, Sri Lanka at Canberra, um, was one of the best kind of debut tons that I've seen in test cricket he just looks like a player who understands his game he looks like the kind of clone it's like if you kind of transplanted um alistair cook's genes into an australian cricketer it's that kind of thing it's, you know he's going to make runs in all kinds of conditions i think there is depth at the same time the best young batsman coming through in australia is minus labashane and when he debuted essentially every single thing on twitter and in articles about him was about how he had the worst record in first class cricket of any australian number three ever Actually, he's just gone on to kind of spit fire and be a brilliant player. Australian cricket has a, you know, for every Zach Crawley that we have, they have about 150 Zach Crawleys who average 28 and then rock up at the Gabba and suddenly just know what they're doing and average 40. And I, I kind of back Australia and particularly Langer to unearth those gems. I don't know whether they'll be able to do it to quite the same extent as, as Labuschagne, but if you can take a guy like that who had a very mediocre record, and turn him into potentially the best number three in the world within about two years. I'm not too worried about whether or not there's, uh, there's no talent there. It's all very much, you know, take, give it two years and suddenly they've got five batsmen averaging over 45 and yeah, it's English cricket in strife again in Australia for all over us. It's, yeah, hell as old as time. Anyway, from Brisbane to Gaul, 
England got their test wins off to a winning start as they beat Sri Lanka by seven wickets. There were five wicket hauls of Don Bess and Jack Leach and a double hundred from Joe Root. But Phil, it'll be rude not to start with Dan Lawrence. He didn't dis- disappoint on debut and assured 73 in the first innings. And he very calmly steered England home alongside Johnny Bairstow in the second half. England had a bit of a wobble early on. How much did you enjoy his performance? <laughs> uh, it was all right, wasn't it? Wasn't it nice? Wasn't it, wasn't it joyous? Uh, all, only trumped by his, his old man's interview on TMS, which, which is one of the great bits of, bits of radio I've ever heard, I think. Talk about a clash of cultures with Angus coming from one side and, and Dan Lawrence's old man from Chingford on the other. It was, you haven't heard it, folks. Go out and find it because it is remarkable. Uh, I think the second innings was more important than the first, really. Um, Dan Lawrence... Everyone knows that he can play spin. Everyone knows that he gets fully forward and fully back, and he has those wrists to react to the turning ball. Uh, he, came, he came out in a dream scenario, really, already up in the innings, comfortably on first innings, and he comes out against a team that is painfully down on its luck, uh, batting with his captain, who was strumming it beautifully at the other end. So that is an ideal time to come in. Uh, and, and he played lovely. He played beautifully in the first innings. None of it really surprised me. And... I got the sense that it didn't surprise him either. And, and this is something that's marked him out since he was about seven years old. Uh, some, most cricketers, most people in life, uh, they, they make it up as they go along. And much of it is front uh, and putting on a face. Dan Lawrence has always believed that he's a test match cricketer ever since he first picked up a bat. And that's what everybody at Essex says. From his academy director, John Childs, who I spoke to about him three or four years ago, to Tom Wesley, to the rest of them. He might have his own way of doing it, but he has absolute unimpeachable self-belief. And that's what you saw in how smoothly he adapted to the game. But the second innings, that was a, that, that's really thrown England's selection dilemmas uh, out now. And it, it's going to be very interesting to see what they do, because to make, to make that 20-odd that low heartbeat 20-odd or even 30-odd, uh, and see England through having been, what, 11 for three, 14 for three maybe, uh, suddenly everyone's around the bat and it's spitting cobras all over the place. For him to have ridden out that scenario, that tells us a hell of a lot. The first inning's told us that he can play. The second inning's told us that he, that he fancies it. Uh, and so he'll obviously play the second test, but then come India, over to you, Joe, really. I mean, how do they get seven or eight batsmen into, into that top six? How do they do it? Uh, yeah, we've been asking each other that for the, for the latest issue of Wisdom Cooker Monthly, ready to make complete fools of ourselves by printing this before the second test in Sri Lanka. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think I completely agree. I thought Lawrence batted beautifully in the first innings, but it was the second innings that made me think he's got to play in India. Uh, particularly day five, which was still a bit of a tricky chase. But I thought Bairstow kind of led that bit on day five he was the kind of he was the man in control but day four end of day four was a completely different scenario first they would run out route very nearly ran himself out the very next ball if he'd done that England were seriously in in, in problems at that stage uh, and it was Lawrence at that point best still very frenetic it was Lawrence that was really cool grinning from ear to ear absolutely loving it uh, and if you can do it in that situation fair enough it's not it's not packed full of people but in terms of the match context if you can do it there uh, on that pitch which was starting to turn sharply uh, Emil Denyard bowled brilliantly in the first innings but actually the um, Pereira started bowled quite nicely in the second innings as well suddenly looking a bit more threatening that match was suddenly 
right on a knife edge, which might not look like that now when you look back on the scorecard, but it absolutely was, particularly with Sam Curran at seven, the longest tail that England have had in a long time with, with Wood, Broad and, and Leach. Uh, yeah, and, and, and the game was on and, and Lawrence was the one that brought it back under control. Uh, and there's really no kind of more impressive thing a youngster can do on debut than, than come through in that pressurised situation. We'll, we'll go into a bit more detail on how we think the top seven should look for India on next week's show. Um, but Joe, what was your moment of the week? The mine came shortly before tea on day one in Gaul, in the midst of that kind of dire first innings batting display from Sri Lanka. Uh, and it was Jack Leach's first test wicket for 14 months. Uh, fairly innocuous delivery, as most of them that took wickets were. Um, Shandamal caught a cover, uh, a good catch from San Curran. But it was, it was important to put that wicket and actually Leach's overall performance in 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 the matching context because he's had a horrendous run of injury sickness hospitalized with sepsis got that mystery bug in south africa and the fact he's got Crohn's disease which makes him particularly vulnerable to to covid and then when he finally is fit he spends the summer watching his understudy at somerset become england's first choice spinner and he barely bowled i think I wrote this down so in fact last year he bowled 52 overs across the whole of 2020 he bowled 59 alone in the first test of Gaul, which he said himself he didn't bowl brilliantly. He can obviously bowl much better than that. But to toil away in the second innings where he didn't, he went for a few, he was bowling too short at, at times. But to come back and get that five-wicket haul, uh, in its own way, was quite an exceptional performance, really. And, and a, a kind of a, a welcome reminder of just what Leach can, can bring to this side. Uh, and it's worth looking at his overall record. It's a small sample size. But uh, 11 tests, taken 40 wickets at 29 Strike rate of 61. That's a better average than strike rate than Swan, better than Panasar, better than Rashid, considerably better average than Moen. Uh, as I say, it is a small sample size. In its early days, India will be a huge test for him. But I, I do think he's currently England's best Red Bull spinner by some distance. And perhaps this kind of cult hero status that he enjoys with the famous one not out and the wiping of the specs has kind of overshadowed his, his bowling in some ways. A little bit like we saw with Monty, who certainly among casual fans would know him for his awful batting, awful fielding. And, and sometimes just what a brilliant bowler on his day he was would be forgotten. I, I think Leach isn't as naturally talented as Monty, but he's cannier. Uh, and I think he has got quite a lot to offer this England side. I think, I think he's a, a good spinner who now deserves a decent run in the side. I think on, on Leach, I think you, you were right to bring up um, kind of his cult status in the Ashes because I think it detracted from him actually having quite a good Ashes with the ball. He averaged like 28, 29 in a home Ashes series, took four on the last day at the Oval. Um, I think a lot was made of his performance in the first New Zealand test last year where, where New Zealand ended up scoring 615 and Watling got a double hundred um, about him not being particularly threatening on what was essentially a dead pitch. But I don't think any other English spinner that England have at the moment would have done much better than he did on, in, in those conditions. Um, I thought what was really encouraging was how he did get better as the test went on. Um, uh, he, he managed to get more good balls in a row, put more pressure on the Sri Lankans and also bowled really, really good wicket-taking deliveries as well. I think four of his five wickets were like your classical left-arm spinner around the wicket, turning away from a right-hander, either beating the edge or getting the edge. Um, so, yeah, I thought it was a, a, a pretty encouraging performance for the I, I was just going to say, it kind of reminds me... Um, just when Joe was mentioning about his, his amazing record, it's a bit of the kind of Stuart McGill thing where like McGill has a better record than Warren because whenever McGill played, 
it was on an absolute ragger. And so, it, it, you know, Leach does tend to play more test cricket in helpful conditions. But at the same time, I think what we've, had, what we've seen now is over, as you say, with the addition of the 2019 Ashes as a bit of a, a kind of test of what you can do in uh, other situations, I don't think anyone actually thinks Don Bess is a better bowler than Jack Leach. And I know, I know that's, that's quite a trite thing to say, but I don't think anyone actually does think it. Jack Leach is a better test match bowler than Don Bess. And there was a really nice piece by Johnny Lowe in The Guardian about how, you know, Don Bess has kind of come, come over a lot, overcome a lot of uh, personal issues. And he's clearly a really impressive young lad and genuinely a really nice, a nice fella to just kind of have around the camp. You can see his value. But you look at how India have constructed their side over the last, uh, the last few years. The one thing you've been criticised for is having a long tail that doesn't back. Now, Jack Leach fits far more into that mould than Don Bess. He's much more a bowler who doesn't bat. I know he's obviously had famous exploits with the bat, but having a spinner who is primarily a spinner is the most important thing if you want to, uh, if you do want to go to, to India and win. I think that in terms of um, uh, our, our, our one measure on Twitter that's done quite well this week, it was expected wickets and we were, we were kind of, we, we did, it did the rounds that Don Bess's five for in the first innings was the, essentially the least deserving five for according to the deliveries he bowled that we've ever recorded um, since 2006 by English Spinner. Um, and so I think, if anything, that just underlines the fact that Don Best is a good bowler. It's fine. Jack Leach is a really good bowler and should be backed above, above Best. And if England can construct the rest of their side well, I'm not on the show next week, so this is my throwing my you know, few pennies worth in for the India discussion. Um, if England construct the rest of their side well, then Leach has to play. India, as far as I'm concerned. Though the wicket of Dick Weller in particular was was just awful cricket, wasn't it? It was embarrassing. It, it, it was a horrible. It was a horrible day of Test cricket. I saw that Michael Vaughan got absolute pe- pelters on Twitter for saying that this was a bad advertisement for Test cricket. Which, as well as being that kind of hyper real thing of a thing being an advert for itself, you know, it was a bad day of Test cricket. In you know, England bowled terribly. Sri Lanka bowled ter- by terribly. That was that was it really. It was a bit of a shame. In- England did not deserve to to take the wickets that they did. But hopefully England you know, can take the, take the lessons from that um, and kind of move forward with a, you know, a degree of expectation that they don't think they're going to do that to India first day in the, in the Test Series. We've not actually mentioned Joe Root yet. The, the skipper got uh, an enormous year for him and, and himself and the team off to the perfect start by scoring 228. Phil, how impressed were you by Root? Personally, I, I thought that was the best he's batted for at least two years, or the most fluently he's looked for at least two years. And I thought off the game as well, he talked about um, rediscovering some of his rhythm and also the benefits of just having some time off, which he just hasn't had for years. Four, four double hundreds now, 8,000 test runs, uh, 98 tests. Uh, and he's just turned 30 last month. Got a, got a bottle of wisdom whiskey as it goes, sent through number 66. Uh, he is, Bizarre as it sounds, he's, he's quite an underrated cricketer, really, I think, Joe Root. Uh, we, we take him for granted and we, we get invariably uptight because, you know, he, he makes a 50 basically every other time he walks out to bat in test cricket, which is insane. But then he, he has the temerity not to then convert that into match-winning hundreds time after time after time. And we dwell on that point. Um, well, I think we should dwell on the first bit. I think we should dwell on the, the ridiculous consistency of, of the kid. And also, I, I think your, your boss, Nathan, Ben, has, has kind of done, 
crunch the numbers on the value of 100 and then, you know, three single-digit scores versus 450s. And I think, and I mean, probably common sense would imply this as well, but I think Nathan's kind of proved it through maths that the player that is consistently there, consistently impacting an innings, is the player that you want. And Joe continues to do that time after time. What he does also have that is often unremarked upon is this, this depth of, of grit and toughness. Because he's quite softly spoken and, you know, pretty and demonstrably lovely, people forget about this a little bit, I think, with, with, with Root. But he is as tough as they come. And he knows that his legacy... Is, is in his hands over the next 12, 18 months. It's become a cliche, isn't it? It's become a cliche. England's big year and Joe's big year. But he knows it. And when I interviewed him when he was in South Africa a couple of months ago, it, he's absolutely conscious of it. Uh, he, he said he, he treated the enforced sabbatical of the pandemic uh, as, as a, a time to reset. You know, now this is a player who's played two formats, would like to play three, but he's played two formats for 10 years and more. Uh, he's got you got a young kid and a young family, and finally he had a moment to breathe last summer. That's a terrible phrase to use, isn't it? Uh, you know what I'm getting at. Um, and he he emerged uh, ready to go again. I think uh, his his position as the leader of the team is probably more uh, unimpeachable now than it's probably ever been before. I think he he acknowledges that he he do, he doesn't he didn't take to the job naturally uh he's not he's not henry v uh he's not a great orator particularly he's a celestially gifted batsman uh who who was the, the the right man to take over from cook um i wrote the i wrote last last month i think he will be remembered in the end as a batsman but he has the chance to be remembered <laughs> as a as a captain batsman and that's what he's striving for that's what he's aiming for uh and look what a great start and just very, very briefly, I know Ben wants to come in. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, and Ben can back me up here or, or tell me that I'm talking nonsense. And I think against the turning ball throughout his career, he's, his record is astonishing. And uh, he is a master, a true, true master of playing the turning ball. Yeah, he's absolutely gone. I mean, we all know that. I think since 2000, which is uh, kind of the point from which we, uh, Great Miss, have kind of complete ball-by-ball -ball data, um, the only England batsman who averages more against spin is Graham Thorpe, um, who was a bit before my time, but from what I can tell from the sepia-tinged uh, kind of video footage, was apparently quite good. Um, so I, I think I think that's kind of testament to the fact that you know Joe Root has overcome everything, all those great players who played in the kind of late 2000s into the early 2010s, Iggy Peterson, your Cooks, your Trots. And he's better than them against Spin. And he's playing against, you know, often in tougher conditions. Some of these pitches that we've seen in Sri Lanka over the last few years have been, you know, they've been proper raggers. They've been properly difficult. And he, yeah, he just deals with it. He gets fully forward, gets fully back. He's just a proper, he's a proper player of Spin. Um, what, two, two things, two, two stories about uh, people who I know who are better at uh, what I do than me. Um, one of them, as you say, about Nathan, he's, he's written a very fascinating book um, including more uh, analysis of the idea of whether you want to be consistent at the top of the order, make big runs or make consistent runs, uh, called hitting against the spin. He'll be hitting the uh, the shelves in the next few months. It's co-authored by me, awkward, but uh, 
it is there. Um, the other one is Pat Patrick Noon of Critviz, um, jogged my memory and kind of, yeah, kind of stirred the emotions a little bit when he was talking about this week, Wayne Rooney retired. Um, and you know, obviously the kind of great white hope of English football at the start of you know, the early 2000s, heralded as going to be the greatest English, English footballer of all time, and then kind of was. But no one really cared by the end. It kind of petered out, and he, he was world-class for a year and a half, and then was just very, very good for an awfully long time. Broke all the records, broke the records for United, broke the records for England in terms of goal scoring. But people just kind of get, well, yeah, well, he doesn't quite do enough, does he? He doesn't quite, uh, doesn't quite kick on enough. He doesn't quite do this, he doesn't. But actually, it's kind of comparable to Joe Root. Joe Root arrives and is told that he's going to be the great batting talent of his generation, is, just rocks up, you know, as you say, 8,000 test runs, is basically brilliant. He, you know, for all of Stokes' genius, just because Root doesn't have that kind of nail that he can hang his hat on in terms of the innings, Root's a better batsman than Stokes. Root's inconsistent more than Stokes. He's been more inconsistent more than anyone in the world for England, really. The fact that he doesn't have that kind of one moment to kind of centre his career around is the one failing against him. But I, I just thought the comparison between them was quite apt in terms of these are guys who were from basically 18 years old told they're going to be the best player that their country has ever produced. And they've, they've, they have delivered on that talent. They've just not delivered on it in the way that a sporting culture which demands kind of mercurial, unsung heroes who come from nowhere to be Roy the Rovers and kind of be amazing. That sporting culture doesn't really value consistently very, very good performance. Doesn't, you know, doesn't really know how to understand it and to reward it. And I think, you know, Rooney will, uh, will go down as England's best footballer. Whether Root does is probably dependent on the next year. I hate to be cliche, but it probably does. Um, and if he can have one big innings, whether it's, you know, double ton of the Gabbard, or, you know, Boxing Day, double century, then that's one thing. But hopefully, English cricket is kind of maturing to the point where it can understand that, you know, not everyone can be Stokes. Some people have to be the kind of laying the groundwork that Stokes jumps off. But, yeah, he's great. He's a, he's a brilliant batsman, and I think he is underrated. And you, get, you do get criticism for saying that. But out of the Fab Four, every other country in the world, whether it's India supporting Kohli, Australia supporting Smith, or New Zealand supporting Williamson, are going to bat for him, whereas England don't really love root in the same way that those countries love their batsmen. I know you're still battling, but it, I think it does separate him from, from that group. No, I made um, a similar comparison in a piece I wrote for Wisdom.com this week about how in, in British sport we kind of overhype young players and then underappreciate them when they don't quite meet those enormous expectations. So not just Rooney, but Roy McIlroy is another one. So Roy McIlroy won as many majors in golf by the age of 25 as any person from the UK uh, since the war and for the six years since has been consistently in the top 10 but no one really thinks of him as like this all-time British sporting great and I think with Root it's almost like people not being satisfied with him being the fourth best player of his generation because he's not quite why, why doesn't he quite do what Williams and Smith and Cody do um, but from an English point of view I think what is really exciting is that peak Root and peak Stokes have never really played that much together at the same time Stokes is best two years as a test cricketer have come as Root has had his mini slump um, where he's not quite hit the, the levels he hit in 2014, 15, 16. So that's very exciting. Um, Joe, question for you. It's only one test, but are you at all concerned by how England's openers have fared against Sri Lanka's spinners? Um, I think Don Sibley in particular has, hasn't done great in test cricket, even going back to his debut in New Zealand against bowlers who've turned the ball away from him. Um, I think his game against pace is based on 
really good judgment of, of where his off stump is and knowing when to leave the ball and when not to. And against left arm spinners and right arm leg spinners, I think he, he struggles a little bit. How, how concerned do you think England should be about that? I think from the dismissals in the first test, I think Sibley is more of a concern than Crawley. Um, particularly in the first innings, I thought Crawley just, if it actually played that shot with a bit more conviction, I don't think it was a bad shot to play. Whereas Sibley looks a bit confused, looks a bit stuck on the crease. Um, I think it is this issue. I think Sibley's not a natural player of spin. He won't have faced a huge amount of quality spin bowling in, in county cricket. Uh, and it's a really hard place to learn. And particularly when you haven't got warm-up games against local opposition, if you're just playing amongst yourselves, it's, it's no preparation to play the type of spinners that you then have to face in the Test Series. Uh, I think it's going to be a, a quite a tough winter for Sibley. And that's not to say that he, he can't ever work out a game against spin. I mean, when I spoke to him, he's, he's clearly a very thoughtful cricketer. He's, he's had difficulties in the past that he's overcome. But I, I do think it's a lot to ask him to get from the stage he is now to be able to take on Jadeja and Ashwin in a month or so and actually do the job that he's in the side for. Um, so look, he, he gets the second test in Sri Lanka, obviously, but, but I would consider uh, not picking him for that first test in India if he doesn't get scored in the second test. Uh, and that's no reflection on what he's done as an opener so far for England. I think he's done exactly the job he was picked for. Uh, come the first test of an English summer, he's right back in there. But I, I, I do fear that currently he hasn't got the game to do what he needs to against the, the Indian spinners. Um, Crawley's another interesting one. I mean, we, we assume he, comp- he he's such an adaptable, uh, natural batsman. Uh, we assume that this will just be the next challenge that he... he, he he kind of excels in, but he has still basically played one admittedly stupendously brilliant innings, but he hasn't got a kind of a, a real back catalogue of, of great knocks behind him. So he has also got a, a difficult task ahead of him, but I, I do have less concerns. I think Sibley is, is the one. Um, and then you come to the point of India, do you start thinking, I know we're going to do this next week, but do you start thinking makeshift opener territory? Do you, do you put someone like, best or, or Pope up top because you just play the players who are best equipped to play the conditions or do you stick with your traditional openers and I think that's a questioning that they're going to have to have to think about ahead of India. Phil any other changes that you'd make from the England side? Uh, probably Anderson for Broad no reflection on Broad he doesn't have to get uptight or upset uh, but you know they're coming thick and fast you've got four tests in India back to back pretty much uh, I'd bring Anderson in for the second test um, I felt sorry for Mark Wood, went wicketless, I think, uh, across both innings, looked unusually down in the dumps towards the back end of the second innings. Um, yeah, maybe maybe bring Wokes in for him, possibly. The rotation of the quicks out there makes a lot of sense to me. Um, uh, I, I would like to see Moeen Ali get in the team somehow. I, I, think, I think we are being too careless with this cricketer. Uh, and I, if they're serious about taking 20 Indian wickets twice in four test matches, I mean, you know, we've probably got two hopes on that one, but we should see. But if they're serious about it, then you need a, you need a, a spinner who's going to properly rag it, going to go at five and a half and over, and going to take three for 120 and 25 overs. Uh, that, that kind of spell, that kind, those kinds of figures of gold dust in India. Um, so... I would like to see him in, almost whisper it, and it sounds terrible, this is a test match, almost as a bit of a trial game, you know, a bit of a trial game. Get him in there some, somewhere. 
I don't think they need necessarily three seamers, one of whom is Sam Curran, um, necessarily. Uh, or they could drop, drop Wood and bring in Mo for Wood. So, you know, there's different options available to them. But, but I think it would be a bit of a misstep to go into that India series without having had a look at Moeing to see where he's at with the red ball. And even if it takes him an innings and a bit to get going, and then he has a bit of a say towards the back end of the game, and the, as the rustiness starts to, starts to go, then, then, then that's something that I would seriously look at. Uh, as to the batsman, obviously you, you keep the top six as it stands uh, with all the caveats around the opening bats. Um, what, what Joe was just saying just there, just very briefly, it reminded me of what Simon Armour said to me a year or two ago about English batsmen. He said, with the exception of James Vince, shut up, Ben, let it go, let it go. With the exception <laughs> of James uh, English batsman, this is what, what Harmer said to me, it's four or it's a block. It's a four or it's a block. It's a, it's a risk shot or it's a block. And he said, in the end, I'm going to get you. Uh, and Dom Sibley, who's a, who's a fine, fine player against the Seamers and definitely has a future, I think, as an England opener. Uh, but I worry that that approach, or rather, I worry about what's required against the turning ball in those conditions is not really his game and that he will be uh, a sitting duck in the end. Crawley is there's a higher ceiling necessarily so, uh, but uh, again he he has a similar kind of approach as well. You know he, he was brought up playing playing seamers and he plays the seamers beautifully. He'd have to learn how to play play against the turning ball as well. Lawrence is a more natural player. Pope is quite a natural player of the turning ball, and Root is obviously a gifted natural player. Uh, but it doesn't come easily to English players, uh, you know, grooved as they are in English conditions. You might have seen on the coverage uh, on TV and, and on the radio, actually, that England did have one fan in Sri Lanka, Rob Lewis, a 37-year-old web designer from Surrey, threw out to Sri Lanka in March and never left in the hope that England would return there. I spoke to him earlier this morning about his weird and wonderful journey that led him to being England's sole fan in Sri Lanka and his uh, quite interesting journey into being allowed to watch the game in the end as well. So first up, what, what possessed you to stay in Sri Lanka after the first tour was cancelled back in March? Um, well, yeah, so I got here and I already knew that the game was cancelled as I was on the, I was sat on the plane waiting to take off when the news came, but it was the last, one of the last sporting events to be cancelled actually. Um, so it was inevitable. Um, so there was a, a week here in Unawatuna Beach where the Balmy Army and uh, cricket fans kind of congregated. Um, and then uh, the news kind of deteriorated. People panicked and got flights home. Um, the foreign minister is telling all Brits abroad to come home. Um, but I'd, I'd actually been working pretty solid to afford this trip. Um, it was actually my second flights I'd bought out there. The original ones were cancelled. Um, so I wasn't going to give this up so easily. So I stayed. Um, I mean, a huge factor in that is I work remotely and I have my laptop with me. So um, obviously that played a big part that I could do that. I just thought that I thought Corona would be over in a month. <laughs> I think most people did think that as well. Um, so, yeah, so it went into kind of lockdown here. And then uh, England's return was penciled in quite early for, for January 21. So I kind of formed the idea it would be, it'd be pretty, pretty hilarious if I, if I stayed this whole time. And uh, I can't actually believe it's been this long it's, and, it's, and it's happened, yeah. What, what's it been like staying in, um, staying in another country during a, a pandemic? Well, I mean, uh, it's, it's not been difficult at all. The first two months was hard. Um, 
because um, Colombo was strictly locked down. People couldn't leave their houses. I was actually in the South, so I had it a bit easier that they had three or six day curfews where you couldn't leave the property. Um, but then they'd have a day off or two days off so people can go to the shop and get food. Um, so that, that went on for two months. I was staying in a hostel with one other person. The hostel was closed, so <laughs> they let us stay, and, but there was, we had to sort of cook and fend for ourselves. Um, but that, at the same time, I adopted a uh, little pup. Um, we'd had a bit of a hard upbringing, so he was, like, <laughs> he was staying in my room. It was nice to have a little bit of company, his little mate that was just following me around. Um, uh, and it wasn't, I mean, I was on the beach, so I kept sneaking onto the beach. I'd have this whole, I was in Hirokatia. Normally it's like thriving for the tourists. And I, uh, I had it on, like to myself for many, many times. It was, it was uh, very surreal. Um, yeah, so that was, <laughs> it, was it wasn't too bad. And then, um, I mean, comparing myself to other people, say back home in the UK, maybe living in like flats or small apartments um i generally um had it very good so it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't too hard at all to be perfectly honest with you were, were there any moments where you uh where you potentially regretted your decision I, i'm just thinking particularly when england's tour to south africa got cancelled halfway through it or when moeen got his positive covid test were you worried that after all these months that it might be cancelled at the last minute yeah, there was <laughs> there was plenty of red flag moments. Um, I mean, it was it was a wing and a prayer that they were going to come back. It only got confirmed in early December, so I mean, was that was seven months where I wasn't even sure they were coming back. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, I missed family and friends, but I, I don't think there was any. I don't think there was any point when I thought I was gonna gonna come home. I was I was having a I was having a pretty good time. I kind of enjoyed travelling. I was getting work done. I was able to support myself. Um, so, so I mean, even if England didn't come, it wasn't like uh, it would have all been not worth it. Like I did, I've, I've been having, um, I've been having a good time out here. Nice. And then I, I saw on on Twitter that there was a bit of drama getting to the venue. So, what happened there, and how were you eventually allowed to watch the test from the fort? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, communication is not Sri Lanka's strong point. Um, there were rumours. I mean, okay, like up to this point, I, I was I was imagining being able to get in. The Barmy Army said they should be able to get me in. Michael Vaughan made a false promise he would be able to get me in. Um, I've been joking with Mickey Arthur the whole time that I could be the Sri Lankan water boy to get in. Um, what I didn't know was that the game was behind closed doors, but that was meant very strictly like you couldn't get near the ground uh, the fort was always my fallback I got there nice and early on day one I spent two hours putting up three banners they're five meters by three meters so I had a help from my, my friend Tom uh, so we put those up I sang Jerusalem as loud as I could probably not quite in the right key <laughs> but I, I, I can't say I didn't try my best trying to project my voice from the fort on my own um, after that, it just descended um, <laughs> into huge disappointment. They kicked me off. They took my banners down. That was heartbreaking. <laughs> um, uh, and then I had to go to the police station to try and get permission to be on the fort. Uh, so I was there twice to get sent in circles. I was at gates around the ground trying to peer through the fence and then kept getting moved on by like men with guns. I kept trying to sneak on the fort, but the police just had me as a marked man. I eventually took matters into my own hands and put a high-vis and hard hat on and dressed up as a construction worker because there were workers up there to try and get a vantage point for the game. 
uh, I eventually got caught by the police. <laughs> I went like, sir, why are you, why are you wearing this? <laughs> I said, I'm on the work site, it's safety first. <laughs> so that, uh, that humoured them and they said, um, oh, you really want to watch the game? I was like, yeah, I do. Um, so they let me watch the, the evening session of the first day from the fort, which was, which was nice of them. However, day two I returned and this angered them a lot. They said, like, they'd given me a chance to watch last night and now you've come back. Uh, like you're, you're taking the mick out of us. They're like, just, just leave and don't come back. Uh, you're not allowed. So it was pretty, uh, pretty hard and fast. Um, so at that point, I was like, oh no, this is only day two and I'm, this is not going to happen. So I tried the ground again, peered through fences. I um, resigned to watch it in a cafe with other fans that are trying to get in. Um, and that's when... Um, I mean, I've been talking to reporters and people back home for quite a bit. And one reporter um, uh, gave me a number for someone at the SLC. So I rang this dude up and said, oh, I need to get on the uh, media accreditation lift to give me access to the fort um, to be able to report on the game. And they needed permission from the England camp. Uh, and I needed permission from Danny Rubin. So I messaged Danny Rubin um, and he offered to help straight away. He he replied back saying yes. He sent an email to the man at the SLC saying I have permission. Um, so after the, uh, so after that, the guy from the SLC said he'd phoned the police and told them I was allowed. And as I went back up to the fort at the end of day two, the same policeman that had been kicking me off and telling me not to come back, they were like, "Ah, oh, Mr. Lewis, <laughs> welcome." Um, their attitude was a complete reversal. So I, I, I saw the end of play on day two there. Um, and from that point on, it was just it was just amazing. I was I was one of only like two people up there uh, the whole game. There was another reporter up there, um, but I was able to sing Jerusalem on day three, which was amazing. And I caught Joe Root's double hundred, where he saluted me. So it was nice of him to double up because I missed his <laughs> I missed his century because I couldn't get in the ground. So it's very nice of him to double up yeah, and give me a chance, <laughs> give me a chance to clap him. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. What, what, what was it like to watch a whole test match essentially by yourself? Um, very surreal. I'd, I'd play. I'd, I'd imagined um, being the only fan singing Jerusalem. I played this out over in my head uh, quite a few times. Um, but there could have. I mean, if they'd let people up on the fort, there would have been a few other people up there. But I never uh, it actually like materialised. Um, it was so surreal. Like, um, I'm trying to sing, trying to sing songs. I don't even know if they can hear me or not. Um, just yelling as loud as I can. Got told off for hanging more banners off the side twice. I was on my last. Um, I was on what do you call it? Last warning. <laughs> They're like, don't don't hang the banners off, sir. And I was like, okay, I re really apologise. Um, but it was it was it was incredible. Um, I think I've proven, on one hand, I think I've proven a point that we need the fans back because it can't, it can't be left for one man to sing, to sing these songs. My throat is pretty coarse after, after a few days of that. And Joe Root not only saluted you when he got to double hundred, but he gave you a call as well. That that was that was pretty special. Did you know that was going to happen? No, no, entirely unexpected. He gave me a clap after the game from the far side which was great. And I got caught on camera. So that was a special moment. Um, and I just kind of hang around on the fort. I was just lapping up the moment, had a couple of beers to celebrate the win. Um, and then he came over with, with Danny. Um, I could see he was on the phone. It turned out he was on the phone to TMS telling him that he's about to call me. 
And then he just waved like with a little phone um, signal. So I looked at my phone, he's calling me and had a personal call from the England captain. It was, <laughs> oh man, it was amazing. It was just remarkable. What, what, remarkable. It was, what did he say to you? Uh, he was thanking me for my support. He's heard of my story. He said the, the lads uh, appreciated it. Um, uh, I, I was just thanking him back, just saying thank you and well done on your on your man match awards. Uh, it means the world. Of that. He's made me a very happy boy. Um, yeah, it was it was it was an amazing gesture. What's uh, what's next then? Are you going to stay in Sri Lanka for good, following England around the world, get a gig with the Barmy Army? What's next? Well, um, uh, the immediate future is the second test, which starts on Friday. So I'll be here um, singing loud and proud on my own. So I'm going to just revel in it because this is never going to happen again. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is insane. Um, so I'm going, to, I'm going to do that. I'm hoping to get in the ground. There's rumours they're going to let some media in. And whether that includes me still being on this list, I don't know. So fingers crossed for that. Um, I've been chatting to the Barmy Army this whole time. They've been, they have been super amazing. I've set up this charity campaign for We Care, who look after the street dogs. Um, I asked the Barmy Army if, I, if, if you want me to like, hang your flags and sing your songs and represent them, then, then please can you help me support this charity, which they have done. Um, yeah, Chris Millard and the team have been, been truly amazing with that. Um, I can't thank them enough. Um, so we've been chatting. I said there's quite, there's quite a lot going on, Chris. Um, obviously, attention is going to turn to the India tour. Um, that is also meant to be behind closed doors. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I've, I, I don't know. Uh, let's, uh, it would be great if I can get a gig with the Barmy Army. They've, they've mentioned it already. Um, so reporting for them would be like a, it would be a dream. Um, but like, yeah, we'll, we'll talk after the after the second test and see see what happens away from those two test matches Pakistan have announced a test squad for their home series against South Africa that gets underway very soon they've dropped Mohamed Abbas yes Mohamed Abbas Harris Hale and Sean Massoud and they've included nine uncapped players in a squad of 20 that includes Harris Ralph who's only played three first class games and Tavish Khan a 36 year old seamer so that that should be interesting they also dropped uh, Zafar Gohar who made his debut in Pakistan's most recent test and finally, Phil, what is your moment of the week? Well, you'd never ask. I interviewed Mithili um, Raj yesterday, uh, and it was one of the most beautiful interviews I've ever had the privilege to, to be a part of. Um, yeah, and it will appear in the, the next magazine, which goes to print tomorrow. Joe, we'll, we'll better get off this podcast. We really should. <laughs> Well overrun, anyway. It's what happens when you get Jones on it. Um, <laughs> Sorry, just to say, you can genuinely see the fear in these two guys' eyes at the final. We've been going for an hour and a half, and I'm still trying to jump in to say something about Harris Rao. There's, there's like there's like a deep fear there. Well, you'll, you'll have to let Harris Ralph uh, slide. I'm afraid. Um, yeah, just on, on Mithili, obviously, you know, the the, the legend of, of Indian women's cricket averages fifty north of fifty in both ODIs and, t- and, t- and Test matches. She's still going as the ODI captain, 38 years young, been playing for two decades, straddled uh, the, the various eras of, of Indian women's cricket um, from, from the days where it was disdained upon, and that was a generous way of putting it to, to now. Um, and I've rarely spoke to a cricketer uh, who is as articulate, engaged, um, interesting, funny, uh, and, and all-round good value, really. So... So yeah, that was quite, it was quite a, 
quite a stirring occasion to speak to her. And it's not often that you get to speak to Indian, Indian cricketers, uh, especially over here in England. Um, and yeah, we had, we had 45 minutes. We went around the houses and it was, it was quite, quite a beautiful interview, really. So that'll appear in the next magazine. Go out and buy it, please. Please. That comes out next, next week, next Thursday, am I right? Next Thursday, you can pre-order it on the, on the internet. Uh, yeah. Excellent. Um, well, that's all for today's quite long show. Thanks, Ben, Phil, Joe. Um, thanks, listeners, if you've managed to, to, to get this far. This has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly <laughs> podcast. If you enjoyed the show, tell your friends, and we'll be back next week. Cheers. Next week's Harry Kane. Podcast Network.